Kevin, how are you doing today? Good, good. Good. Thanks for taking some time. Um, there's a bunch of things I want to ask you, but one of the things that uh, we've known each other for a long, long time, and one of the things I've always wanted to ask investigators like yourself, um, from your perspective, you've done so much of this. What makes a good investigative piece? You know, when you work on something, obviously the issue's got to be something that's relevant to people. But from your perspective, whether you're writing it or working with a team or reading somebody else's, from your, you know, from where you sit, what makes a good investigative piece? Great question. And it's something that I discuss with teammates on our investigative team. And I discuss with judges when we're judging contests. And and for me, at least, it's, it's always, I like a story that makes me say, hmm, I didn't know that. You know, and I, I, when I write a story, I envision someone sitting with a bowl of cereal and a cup of coffee, uh, investing some time, and they want to be educated about something. And, uh, you know, if they were just looking for a quick hit, right? that's not what I'm providing. I'm providing a story that's going to, you know, tell them something they didn't know. And at the end of the story, they'll come away knowing something they didn't know. That, that's my goal as an investigative journalist. And obviously, you want to be revelatory. But sometimes stories don't have to be as revelatory as much as they are connecting dots. And that's important to have a kind of a broader understanding of the world you live in, a deeper understanding of a topic. Right. And and you obviously have been correspondent. You've covered domestic and global issues. And one of the things in the AML community that I've been fortunate to be part of for all these many years is I don't think we, the community, spends as much attention on uh, – corruption related topics we talk about peps and we do some fraud issues but i think corruption is just such an important aspect because obviously funds from corrupt activities uh are laundered are laundered funds but the question to you would be with all the reporting that you do how prevalent is global corruption and and where we have it here obviously but and and they're in a number of countries and maybe they're in all countries, but just in terms of you sitting back and saying, well, you know, I've, I've reported in South America, Latin America, reporting Eastern Europe. Is it all basically the same? You've got people that are cheating or is are there places where it's more prevalent than others? And, and I guess the second question would be what enables that, right? Is it, you know, weak government, weak oversight? What's your take on corruption in general? Right. I, I think weak institutions are the enabler, uh, regardless of where you are around the world. And there are plenty of places, you know, the transparency rankings of right. uh, governments is, is a helpful indicator. And the State Department itself does some of that, too, and certainly on human rights. And so many of these things, you know, corruption, human rights, transparency, they all kind of overlap and they're all part of the broader issue um, in terms of why and how it happens. I mean, I, I think one of the if anything, I've learned over the years being overseas is that a vote isn't a democracy. And if you don't have a democratic ethic, ethic in the workplace, in, you know, in the home, right. uh, you know, democracy is an ethic as much as anything. And, and so in places that you've had countries disrupted um, and power structures that, you know, were either ethnic warfare or one power group kind of controlling means of production uh 
you know, I think you'll see more of that. So you'll find that in a place like Paraguay, you know, which was a smuggler's cove for as long as anyone can remember. You'll see that in uh, Lebanon because of its geography, uh, you know, kind of geography sometimes determines that, too. You know, you wrote a story with uh, your teammates at the Miami Herald last month that I, I, you were kind enough to send to me, and I, I took a look at it. And, and it's basically about about a couple of things about a Venezuelan who's a, um, a fairly rich individual, obviously, is tied to this corruption case. Um, but what struck me was that the monies came through Luxembourg. You know, now I, I'm certainly well aware of countries that have bad reputations for shell uh, companies and uh, you know whether you go to the Caymans of Jersey or or here in this country Delaware or Nevada uh, but the focus on Luxembourg I, it didn't it did I can't say I read it and said oh I didn't know that I sort of suspected it but didn't know the scope of it talk talk a little bit about that story and then the the angle that I'm interested in besides Luxembourg the, some of that some of those funds went through US institutions and so I'm I'm curious how you High level, how you connect, how you guys connected the dots there. Well, the uh, the quick version is that uh, that project, Le Monde and its partners were able to the French publication Le Monde and partners were able to effectively scrape an existing website, mm. uh, uh, the corporate registry for Luxembourg, and and were then be effectively were able to recreate the. Um, the beneficial owners database. Now, if you or I go through the front door on the online thing and try to find, uh, you know, John Byrne as a director of a company, you're not going to find it. Right. Uh, but through this scraping mechanism, they were able to kind of recreate the database of all and, and recreate the information. And from that call, the beneficial owners. And what we found when we had the ability to search for the beneficial owners is we found them. So we could have done the same thing hypothetically in Delaware or Liechtenstein or Hong Kong or Cyprus. Right. There are, all these places have public facing companies. But if you don't know the directors and, and Cyprus is not a fair one, because Cyprus is actually more transparent. But um, most of these uh, you can't search by director. So you have to know the company you're looking for. Well, that's if you're a law enforcement agency, you know, they got. 10,000 companies, how, would you, how are you going to just throw a dart out on the wall? How are you going to know which one to look at? So uh, the beneficial uh, ownership database was huge for us to be able to pull out. And we pulled out the gentleman that you were referring to as uh, Alejandro Betancourt, right. very well, uh, Brazil, uh, Venezuelan who was uh, made his fortune during the Chavez era. And, and he's managed to stay one step ahead of law, law enforcement for quite some time. Um, lots of rumors but nobody's charged him um and uh the other one that we focused on was a cuban uh gustavo uh, i'm sorry guillermo uh, faustino rodriguez lopez calleja who is a brother of one of the most powerful people in cuba and, and uh has we found has been kind of behind the scenes the, the pivotal person in the shipping industry mm. uh, think about how cuba has been able to stay afloat despite the u.s trade embargo well part of its shell companies and being able to hide behind companies that don't show their beneficial owners. You know, um, that sort of leads me to, I'll go back, I'll go back and ask you about the financial institutions in in a few minutes, but it leads me back to what we're um, grappling with as a country. Now we, we, you know, we recently passed 
a pretty major, probably the most dramatic since the Patriot Act, uh, Money Laundering Reform Act, uh, that has a whole series of things in there. But one of the things, as you well know, that's in there is the creation of a beneficial ownership registry that FinCEN would run. And so it struck me that um, while they haven't proposed the regulation yet, so we don't know exactly how it's going to work, but based on your experience with Luxembourg's corporate registry, which from your storyline, it had more than 140,000 active companies, what would be your cautionary comment to FinCEN, not from a policy perspective, but as they're creating this registry, from, from your experience, what should they make sure is included or who gets access? I mean, from a practical standpoint, uh, you know, you have experience. So what, what would you tell FinCEN as they're sitting there trying to figure out how we're going to put this together? And uh, again, not from a policy perspective, not what you think, but what you think would be a, a challenge that they should not, not replicate if they can, if they can avoid it. Well, I would have a, a requirement that they have a verifiable contact. Okay. And, you know, one of the things, a couple of things that changed after the Panama Papers in 2016 here in the United States, it was a, a kind of a patchwork quilt. It's not you know, these limited liability corporations or uh, any number of different ways you can incorporate around the country. Well, what was happening in Wyoming and Nevada was there was kind of a race to the bottom. They saw that Delaware was so successful. Right. And. Delaware has a whole court structure and everything, kind of an infrastructure built around LLCs. Wyoming and Nevada did not have that. And um, so in Wyoming, they were, you know, they just needed, you just had to put a name of a contact. So these are many of the Russians who were opening them in places like Buffalo, Wyoming, a small town of like 700 people or something, you know, they, their contact was often a shell company created by kind of a master shell company where that would be on like 30,000 different companies. And that was Mossack Fonseca. Right. There was no person behind that. It was a fictitious company. Um, in Nevada, they, uh, they expressly kind of hung up a shingle and said, come on in, bad guys. We're not going to look at you unless we get a subpoena. So they didn't even do spot checks and compliance. So all that to say that if you're going to create a beneficial owner registry, it has to be a real person that you can contact separate from this question of who is a beneficial owner, which we've argued about for a decade. Right. Um, but uh, it has to be a verifiable contact, a real phone number, and then you got to do spot compliance and make and have real penalties for noncompliance. And, and so it's just going to be an interesting test because my own personal view, and it is not uh, – it's just based anecdotally on having spent a lot of time in documents. Sure. We do a good job requiring things. We don't actually do a good job following up on it. And so, you know, how often are things spot checked? The geographic targeting order that uh, right. FinCEN is out for real estate. What percentage is being, you know, verified spot checked? None of that's public. And uh, history has not shown that we've been really good on really proactive on white collar crime. You know, that's a that's a great point. I just finished. Uh, we have at RightSource almost uh, 2000 employees and many of them are are analysts. Right. So we bring them in and we, and we train them. So I just did a session before we jumped on this uh, interview um, on the reform bill and talked a little bit about beneficial ownership. And one of the questions from the analysts, which I thought was uh, it's definitely in your wheelhouse and, and you'll appreciate the connection in a second is they asked, they said, there's so many exceptions in the in the eventual reg in terms of the statute, like trusts and some other things. And so 
why is that? And won't there be gaps? And I can just say as a quick aside, I've talked to Hill staffers about this and what they've said, I don't know how public they've said this, but they've said that the reason there's a series of exceptions is because that information can be gathered someplace else. So it just led me to think that if that's true, and there's no reason to, to question their comment, but they, somebody in the government probably needs to do a, an FAQ document or something that says, here's what the reg is going to be. The reasons these characterizations aren't there is because X, Y, Z, because to your point, we don't do a great, I mean, I've been in this space 30 years. We don't do a great job in white collar crime uh, prosecutions because they're tough to do. We do a decent job of, of requirements, but to your point, not always the correct oversight. So I see all this as, it's better than it was. You know, the CDD rule from May of 2018 is not sufficient. This is better, a registry, but it's the devil's always in the details. Who gets access? All the all the things that you just mentioned. I know the press won't get access. So I'm sure that doesn't make you happy, but I don't think institutions get it unless they fill out an application. So I think there's a lot more that has to happen for this to be, um, you know, the the proper response to the previous lack of information if that makes any sense yeah no it, it does and I, I you know the question is are they doing this proactively or reactively and right that's good the other things they did, i don't think they were chomping at the bit to do this uh, and i think you know we have benefited from the lax system in many ways too so it's a two-way street sure um let me ask you um uh, and i'm hoping and you've been kind enough to connect me with some of your other colleagues because it, as you just said it's been five years since the panama papers and and obviously we've had the panama papers we had the paradise papers they're not all all connected but there's similarities and the fincen files obviously was also something that investigative journalists have been involved in um is it changing anything from your perspective? Obviously, now we're going to have this registry. So you could argue that the Panama Papers eventually led to both the reg in 2018, even though it was sort of on its way, but also that now we're going to have this. Um, but do you see that as a uh, those those series of investigations having a positive, no negative impact, obviously, but a positive impact on policymakers or does, does more have to come out? What's your take? Yeah, I... I, I think we still have this kind of bifurcation, uh, multi-layered, you know, so the Treasury doesn't always talk to DEA, who doesn't always right. talk to State Department. So I do think uh, one of the flaws is that this isn't, even if it's kept in a central place, it's not forming the basis of a lot of different investigations. And I think it's the oldest, you know, cliche in the book, follow the money. Um, take your whatever your crime is, follow the money. And I, and I think we still are not uh, where we need to be in being able to use th these tools that, about the beneficial ownership and the, and the trail in ways that are completely uh, <laughs> as useful as they could be. Um, that said, and in fact, law enforcement has been clamoring for this. Uh, that, that had been one of the pushes for a decade in terms of the beneficial ownership. So right. now let's see what happens now when we have it. Um, but I do think that the Panama Papers, the successor uh, leaks from the Paradise Papers, the FinCEN files, which we, we were part of the FinCEN investigation, right. the Buzz ICIJ, you know, one of the things you see there is there are an awful lot of SARS suspicious activity reports that aren't getting a finger lifted. Um, 
and uh, makes you question the resources. And then the question is, you know, in a world where we don't have infinite resources, should we or should we not? And if not, what, you know, what does that mean for this approach? So I'm not sure we've had as much dialogue as we really should have around this. But I do think uh, one of the things that the FinCEN files showed was you could see how people are starting to adapt based on what happened in the Panama Papers. So we, we kind of anecdotally know that other service providers took these people and, and they're starting to try to make bigger mousetraps. One of the things we identified in the, parad- in the Panama Papers that I don't think has fully been looked at is foundations and how they're creating these fictitious foundations right, right. as a replacement. This is a little technical, but it's kind of like a, an equivalent of bearer shares where you don't really see the ownership structure. And um, so I, I think there's a, there's work to do. And uh, I'm always a little bit pessimistic by nature that I just think the bad guys, you know, have a motive to find a, a way to do it better. You know, it's interesting. We, we could, we could talk for hours about this because I don't disagree with your overall assessment, but I will say this, the reform bill actually touches some areas that you just referenced, right? So they're, they're looking about uh, establishing priorities. So having the State Department and the Justice Department and Treasury say, and I'm paraphrasing, these are the things that we should focus on, right? So coming up with that, potentially changing the SAR process so that, for example, when you file a SAR on a transaction under 10,000 thinking they're structuring, you don't have to do all this extensive narrative creating, right? You can, you can simply do maybe a short form SAR. So that would be, you don't want to not report it, but that would be useful. And I think so this there's uh, what's the feedback loop. What, what are, what's the financial sector getting from the reporting in terms of being able to better prepare themselves. That's in there too. So there's a number and, and improving information sharing. So I think, not that all of it's going to happen overnight, not that all of it's going to solve everything. But to your point, I think that it's finally being approached by policymakers and frankly, a lot of us on the outside that sort of push these things that, yeah, you know, we have 30 plus years of money laundering prevention and we have a number of high level enforcement actions. But outside of that, we still have problems. So how do you fix it? So I think some of the things that you've identified they're at least in the legislation. So we'll, you know, we'll see what happens when these things get implemented. But I'm a little more confident because I'm like you calling for changes in these laws for years, um, just reviewing everything, forcing them to do that. Now, you need the bandwidth to do it. But I think to your point, um, a lot of the things that you've identified, they're at least on the table, which wasn't the case previously. Yeah. And I, I think. Uh, two other things that are positives that will will drive more transparency. One, as a foreign policy tool, I think you see post-Panama Papers, what it told us about Putin, his inner circle, and how they move money. That highlighted the importance. And then you get into the cyber world. Now you're talking about Bitcoin. And I think that's that's a whole other topic and how you guard you know guard against bitcoin becoming a store of illicit value and the liberty reserve was one case that yep. has you know worn pretty clearly on that uh the other thing is is cartels for instance i'm not sure we do a great job still in understanding how the cartels move their money you know we've always kind of thought it happened through casas de cambio little money house right. house and uh, things like that one of the great surprises to me in the panama paper i was I was so sure that we were finally going to get a sense of how the Mexican cartels 
move their money. And in fact, there was almost nothing in there, very little. Right. And I think part of it is that I think a lot of their money doesn't leave Mexico. Hence, it doesn't need to go out. But um, I think going forward, that's, you know, as they get strategic about sectors, they want to look at whether it's, you know, human trafficking or drug trafficking, you know, having a common starting point is, is always a great thing. So uh, I'm optimistic there. Yeah. I, you know, uh, I have a, a couple more uh, questions for you. And like I said, I, I, we could we could talk for a lot longer about some of these other areas. But as I as I referenced, you know, obviously, um, I've been in the financial sector most of my career and obviously now working with them as clients and uh, at ACAMS doing programming for them. And so I'm not I'm not completely objective, but I like to think I'm a little objective. So um, for somebody like yourself, who's investigated all sorts of financial crime, whether it was money laundering or, you know, garden variety fraud or, or what have you, what is your sense of the financial sector compliance? And I guess I'll, I'll prejudice your answer a little bit by saying, obviously, they're spending millions of dollars with software programs and resources. AML officers are are making more money in starting salaries than I would have guessed 30 years ago. Um, so they're, they're putting a lot of money behind it. But what is, what is your take from what you've covered? Just, I know you can't say they all do X or they, none of them do X, but you know, is, is it a mix? What's your, what's your perception of the, again, the compliance side of the financial sector, not necessarily the business side, because I know there's challenges there, but the p- compliance side and the support for compliance, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think on the on the smaller level, on the smaller scale, I think the financial sector is, is really doing a good job. That's one of the things the FinCEN uh, file showed us is that banks are and, and other financial players are reporting things that are suspicious and they they have that as a priority. Now, fast forward to the big players like a Deutsche Bank, and you've seen all the things that have come out in the last five, seven years on Deutsche Bank, when you're talking about large, large amounts of money in this, then I would put, I would give lower marks there. And I, I, I'm guessing you would too, uh, because compliance people were ignored or there's a way to find, uh, there's a way to, to work around a problem. And the lawyers do that. And of course, we know that lawyers have been able to avoid the same kind of know your customer requirements that uh, that bankers and others in finance have so in that sense um, you know I, I think it's a it's a story a size driven story I think the smaller smaller fish are getting caught for sure yeah it's hard it's hard to um, you know with the larger I obviously I spent I spent four years at Bank of America in in the early 2000s and the commitment certainly was there but there was so it was like whack-a-mole, right? There were so many things, whether it was cyber attacks, whether it was frauds in different areas. I'm not, I'm not excusing. I'm just saying there's so much going on. So the culture has to, has to be there. And that's always been a struggle um, to, to get that focus. And um, the one FinCEN director from, from my money that I think did such a good job uh, was Jennifer Shasky Calvary in this one space. She created that culture of compliance advisory that I know a lot of my peers and colleagues were able to wave and show to senior management and said, look, you know, they, they, law enforcement regulators, they can tell if the commitment's not there. And I think, well, that's seems sort of obvious, but having it in black and white, I think, I think helped. So I, I think that it's, it's always 
it's always true. I'm just hoping this legislation will turn into the info sharing and, and things, um, you know, that, that we want to see. And I, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic, but, you know, uh, as, as you said, the, the, the proof is in the pudding, but I, I do, I do feel, um, that my peers and colleagues, uh, the ones that are super proactive, you know, they, they created a process to go after human trafficking. They created a process to go after elder abuse. And that came from sort of the bottom up as opposed to the top down. And so I, I'm confident that we can, can continue to do that. But, uh, but obviously um, resources are not enough. You know, <laughs> one way you mitigate against insufficient resources is data. And, yeah. and, data. and one of the things we've done is our own investigative team has become very data heavy i'm not one of the sophisticated data guys but we have guys you know who know how to batch search who know how to you know create spreadsheets that really allow you to start identifying things in ways that you might not have done before and i think that uh, you know the financial sector has good from the ground up has done good things but whether it's a news organization a financial organization all of us are being transformed by data and, and algorithms and how we use and collect data. And I think that offers us right. really a, a, a better way to do things with, without the same heavy resource that we might have needed for white collar, uh, tra- tracking white collar crime. So, I mean, I think there, there are reasons to be optimistic going forward. So last question for you, Kevin, and so appreciate your time today. Um, uh, looking at a crystal ball, obviously what we've dealt with in the past year in terms of financial crime has been pandemic fraud and, and all, all, all that's accompanying that. What, what do you see down the line? If you're talking in front of, as you are, in front of AML professionals, based on your experience and what you've been looking at, uh, what, what are the challenges you see? You, you, you identified cyber. That's clearly one. What are the challenges you see going forward in terms of maybe not new crimes, but maybe um, – uh, focus on, 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 on different types of criminal activity, j- just in general, you know, if you're trying to give us some recommendations and advice, what should we be focused on in the next couple of years? Yeah, I, I, I think more of the same, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we know for the most part, we know where the problem is, you know, Bitcoin or crypto or all of these are problems, but they're problems that tend to be led by bad actors in places that we're already looking at if that makes sense. So, and I think we know where the choke points are. I mean, from a, if you put a document in front of me and I see Malta, I know it's going to mean one thing. If I see Cyprus, it's going to mean something. If it's, you know, you, you can almost look at the vintage of a shell company and where somebody is to determine, you know, what sort of activity they were in. So I, I you know, I think we know for the most part, you know, who the bad actors are, where they're coming from. And those in, in and of themselves are good flags. Years ago, I used to cover the transportation industry. And one of the things customs did very well, U.S. customs, was they were early adopters on algorithms to, to note irregular shipments. So if you sent 10 shipments from Jamaica to Cartagena and your 11th shipment is Jamaica to Aruba, that's going to flag attention right. when it lands in a U.S. port. And... Uh, those sorts of, you know, that was early data were so much more sophisticated. But again, the, what Lamont did by recreating this register of beneficial owners, I do think I would hope that intelligence agencies have been doing that well before journalists have. 
And um, so I, I do think we have a sense of where the problems are. It's a lot of it's, it's political will, but it's also there are so many other things. grabbing. That's right. Uh, so uh, Kevin Hall, senior investigator with McClatchy's Washington Bureau. Most uh, a lot of the work goes in, into the Miami Herald and folks can follow you on Twitter. What's your uh, Twitter handle? Uh, at Kevin G. Hall. That's easy. <laughs> Kevin, thanks so yep. much. Thanks for all the great work you're doing. And I think it's, again, a good uh, reference point to let people know it's hard to believe it's in five years uh, since the Panama Papers, which doesn't seem that long ago. Uh, but it, it definitely has put a spotlight on on issues that we sort of knew were there before. But, you know, uh, I think FATF has certainly identified shell companies and and all of that, but I just think it's it's important. Uh, you folks do important work. Uh, the consortium does great work, but investigative reporting, especially in our space, is is just so necessary. So keep much much appreciated. If yeah, please go ahead. The, the go ahead. Documentary that Alex Winter, yeah, the Alex Winter did the documentary on the Panama Papers. Uh, which uh, really kind of did a very good job of showing how reporters around the world collaborated. And it's shown the way for all of us since then. We continue to collaborate. We work with the OCCRP, the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. I've worked with Bellingcat, which has right. done all the Navalny stuff lately. You know, it's, it's opened the door for a lot more uh, cross-border collaboration. But with the movie also reminds with uh, Daphne Corona, uh, our colleague from Malta who was murdered, uh, is that there's a real price for some of this reporting. And, and in the era that we're coming out of with the fake news and stuff like that, we've lost several people. And we had our, you know, our, our Mexico correspondent in that, it's not in the documentary, but he had to flee Mexico under right. threats of his life from the cartel. And uh, this is serious business. And uh, yeah, no, thank you. So Thanks again. It. And I urge people to follow you on Twitter to look at the, uh, the doc and obviously uh, the great work that the consortium of investigative journalists, uh, that's a gr great organization, produces a lot of really good work and continues to do that. So, Kevin, thanks so much for your time. Stay safe. We'll talk soon.